In 2013, when I proposed to Jessica, I offered her a ring to symbolize our marriage. Now, it wasn't one of those deals where she had picked out a ring and I knew this very specific ring to go and get, and it must be that ring, and if it's not this ring, I'm going to say no. It wasn't one of those deals at all. I had had an idea of what she had liked. Uh, We had gone ring shopping once, but I wanted to pick it out. I wanted it to be something that was from me to her. And now I knew Jessica, and I knew what she liked. I knew her style. And when I found the ring, I knew it was perfect. I knew it was a perfect ring for her. And when I proposed for her, and much like uh, married women in the room, no, when you get engaged, you spend the next day or two or a week just staring at your ring and showing your ring off to others. Because the ring is beautiful. It is something that is wonderful to look at. But more than its beauty, it symbolizes something greater. And it symbolized something greater for Jessica. It symbolized a wedding that she had probably thought about since she was a young girl. It symbolized a husband that would be with her, a life partner that would be committed to her, that would provide um, uh, stability and uh, protection and provision. It symbolized that ring as she looked at it, I imagine. It it symbolized one day uh, a future family that she would have. And now we have four beautiful kids, Russell, Daisy, Jane, and Aubrey. That ring in its beauty physically, as you look at it, it it's a nice ring. But that ring symbolized so much more for Jessica, something deeper, a family, a home, children, As we look at the parables, the parables do a similar thing for us. We are meant to look at them and turn them upside down and see them every which way, but in a much deeper way, they symbolize and point to something greater, the kingdom of God and what Jesus is doing uh, for us. That Jesus has come near, it symbolizes his great love for us and that Jesus has come to make all things new. Now, last week, we looked at the parable of the soils and how the parable is also made to put us into focus. It's meant to make us uh, see ourselves in the gospel story in a way, to ask the question, who is Jesus and how are we to respond to him? And that's where we're going to end this parable today, where these group of people ask, who is this one that even forgives sins? And it leaves on this cliffhanger of sorts where we're supposed to ask and answer this question. So this morning, we're going to be looking at this wonderful parable in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn there to Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. Now, before we read, let me observe a few things for us. There's going to be three primary people in this story that surrounds this parable. Jesus, the Pharisee Simon, and this unnamed sinner, simply called the woman of the city, a woman of the city. And in this parable, or in this story, Jesus is going to flip it to show a moneylender and two debtors. It's a wonderful story uh, that's full of drama and intrigue, and it's just two verses long. Uh, But before we get there, let me just give you the main idea of this passage. The main idea, if we take one step back in verse 33, is that Jesus Christ is a friend of sinners, and he forgives all sizes of debt. He is gracious and generous. 
If you are here this morning and you recognize you're dead already before even reading this parable, know this, Jesus Christ is a friend of sinners and he absolves debt of all sizes. It says this in verse 33, for John the Baptist came neither eating, drinking, eating bread nor drinking wine and you say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Jesus Christ is a friend of sinners. Let's read this together, starting in verse 36, uh, going through 50. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, you can read there. It'll be on the screen as we go. All right, here we go. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50 when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, whom the canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say, among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, as we read this story, there might be some immediate confusion that comes in. So let me clear two things up that has caused me some confusion that might help us with some understanding of this story. If you've read the gospel accounts, you'll know that this isn't the first time that Jesus has had his feet anointed or even cleaned with tears and hair. And so if you read the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of John, we start to wonder, are all of these one story or separate stories? What are we to make of them individually? Uh, but if we look at them chronologically, there are three stories of Jesus' feet being anointed. And the first one is here in Luke uh, chapter 7. But what makes it confusing is that the next time it happens, it also happens at a man named Simon's house as well. But this isn't Simon the Pharisee, it's Simon the leper. And a woman comes in and cleans his feet. 
The last time it happens is at Lazarus's house. And what adds to the confusion here is that Simon the leper's house is in Bethany and Lazarus's house is in Bethany. So if you've read quickly through the Gospels, all of these stories can start to collide and run in together, but these are three separate accounts. Two men named Simon, it happened twice in the town named Bethany, but this is Simon the Pharisee and the first time that this happens chronologically. Now, the second thing that might provide some confusion that's always bothered me, I've never really been able to wrap my head around this scene of someone coming in and falling down at Jesus' feet, and they're crying, and they're washing his feet with their hair. That's always just seemed awkward to me. I've never really quite gotten how this has played out, because in my modern mind, I envision Jesus sitting at a dinner table like we sit at. And so I imagine them sitting across from each other, his feet under the table, and someone coming in and like awkwardly trying to scoot his chair, like, I, I need to cry and clean your feet here. Like, it's never really added up for me. But in the first century, uh, they had a much different way of eating. Now, when you think of Jesus eating at a table, is there any specific image in art history that comes to mind? The Lord's Supper, The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. I think I have the, the photo here. This is typically what comes to mind, and this is probably what has attributed to some of my confusion. How does someone get to the feet of Jesus here to wash his feet? But this is not how they ate at all. In fact, it was called a triclinium in the first century. Uh, next picture here, where they would have three couches on the side of the table, and they would literally lay on their sides, supporting their head with their left arm and eating with their right hand. It provided an intimate uh, space for friends to come and join a meal together. And you can see this makes a lot more sense how Jesus' feet would be available uh, to go and wash the feet of the disciples, even when he gets up from the Lord's Supper table, uh, to go around and wash his disciples' feet. But it also makes much more sense as a woman comes in, uh, all of a sudden, behold, a woman from the city comes in, weeping, going to Jesus' feet and washing uh, her, his feet with her hair. The next picture I have, this is just uh, because it's interesting. This was found and dated around 300 B.C., uh, I forget where it was at, but it provides this same image here of what gathering around a table with some friends would look like. And the last one is a new image, a new rendering by artist James Tissot uh, in the 1800s where he took da Vinci's painting and then put it to what it would actually look like. So I don't know if that clears up some confusion for you. It definitely helped me in my understanding of this passage. Now, when we get into the scene of the house, like we have three characters, like we mentioned earlier, Jesus, Simon the Pharisee, and the woman of the city. What's interesting, when we think about Simon the Pharisee, Jesus didn't go around duking it out with every Pharisee. Some Pharisees invited Jesus to their house, and Jesus accepted the invitation to recline at the table in this position would be a seat of honor, in a way. It would be an invitation of a friend reserved for welcome guests or close friends. But if we look 
carefully. We can't just rely on the invitation from Simon and them reclining at the table. If we look closely, Simon has a really hard heart, not just towards the woman of the city, but to Jesus as well. Let's read in verse 39 and 40 again. It says this, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now some commentators have pointed out that this invitation by Simon was possibly an invitation not just to a meal but a celebrated festival on the Jewish calendar. Because during these times, it was common for a meal to take place in an open room that would allow people that were wandering or poor to come into the house and ask for food. So it's not as startling as it might read for someone just to bust into the home. But if we look at Luke chapter 7, there has been something that has been building up that Luke has been getting us ready to see. And it's incredible, and it provides all this tension. If we go back to the very beginning of chapter 7, Jesus heals a centurion's servant. This Roman centurion comes to Jesus and says, my servant is sick, I need you to come heal him. And then when Jesus goes, the centurion says, you don't even need to come into my house. I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. And Jesus heals him. And do you remember what Jesus says about this centurion? About his faith, the centurion's faith? Does anybody remember what Jesus says about him? There is no one in Israel that I have found that's had faith like this. Now, this is kind of, it's not bold for Jesus to say. If anybody can say it, it's Jesus. But this could make some people upset. Israel is God's chosen nation, God's chosen people who follow faithfully the law and the commandments and the Torah. And for Jesus, this prophet, to come on the scene to say, no, no, this Roman centurion Gentile who you all despise, there's not been anyone in all of Israel that has faith like this man. This would make people start to get angry. But the very next story, the intensity raises. There's this woman who has lost her son. She's dead. And Jesus comes and he heals the boy. He raises him from the dead. And the people start saying this in verse 16. They say they were filled with awe and praised God. And this is what they said. A great prophet has appeared among us. And then they elevate it. They say, God has come to help his people. Verse 17 says that the fame of Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. All right, so now we have this prophet that's come that has declared this faith, this centurion. But even more so, these people are starting to recognize that Jesus is a great prophet and they're saying that God has come to his people and news about Jesus is going everywhere. People are starting to talk about Jesus all around the place. But then it gets even more intense when John sends his disciples and they ask, are you the one who's come? And Jesus, after the disciples leave, uh, leave he says, what did you all come to see? A reed shaken by the wind, someone dressed in fine clothing? He says, I'll tell you this, though. I am a great prophet, but I'm also something greater. 
Okay, so you see how this is elevated in intensity. A great prophet, God has come near us, and then Jesus saying, I'm a great prophet, yeah, but I'm also something more. And the very next story that we have is a Pharisee investigating this claim. Is Jesus the prophet? Notice the dissent in Simon's reasoning. He says this, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman she is. So Simon invites Jesus to his house. This woman comes in. Certainly Simon has heard all about Jesus because it's spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So here comes this woman, and Simon's very first thing that he says after all of this is, if he were a great prophet, he'd know this woman that was touching him. The second descent of reasoning for Simon, if he knew the type of woman that was touching him, he would not let her touch him which leads to the third descent of reasoning. Since he does let this woman touch him, this means that he is no prophet. And you can feel Simon's heart harden across the table, locked in one of those trances where you are just grumbling inside of your head against this person that you do not like that is thwarting you at every turn. Now, this is a very small detail, but it's supposed to hit us with a bunch of weight. Who have the people been saying Jesus is? a prophet, a great prophet. One commentator points this out that might not seem like a big deal. How does Simon respond to Jesus when Jesus says, I have something to tell you? Does he call him a prophet? No. He says, say it, teacher. Now we know Jesus has been a teacher, and he is a teacher, but there is a hierarchy in roles, according to this commentator, that to be a great prophet, Simon knows this, he's heard this, but instead of recognizing him as such, he's throwing in this little jab to say, say it, teacher, what do you have to say? When we read this story, we really think Simon is looking down on the woman, which he does, but on the inside, he has greater hardness towards Jesus. All right, let's look at person number two, the woman of the city. Now, commentators are back and forth on what this means, but there seems to be a consensus among most that it's likely that this woman is prostituting herself. To be a woman of the city means that she is involved in prostitution. How she got there, we don't know, but to be a woman of the city implies she's living a lifestyle that's not a woman near the temple, if you know what I mean. This woman has become notorious in her society. In Simon, to be fair, he rightly calls her a sinner. Prostitution is sinful. If she is a woman of the city and living that lifestyle, it's no small matter, especially for someone who is a teacher or who is a Pharisee, and most definitely for someone who is calling themselves a prophet. If we look at the law in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, they both tell us that a woman that lives this lifestyle could be stoned to death. Deuteronomy goes a step further and says that money earned by prostitutes is not allowed to be accepted in the temple as offering. Now, hold on to that because we're going to come back to that at the very end, that a prostitute's offering is not allowed to be accepted. And then behold, this woman of the city, she comes bursting forth in this dramatic scene as they're all reclining or laying down at the table. I remember, I imagine a hush falls over everyone there. 
and she just brings herself to Jesus in tears and weeping and begins to wash his feet. Now notice the contrast that Luke is giving us. He's setting us up to see. He's contrasting for us both Simon and the woman of the city. Simon is a named man. The woman of the city, unnamed and most likely given a poor title. Simon is educated. He's a Pharisee. He would have gone through years of education. This woman of the city, uh, who is a prostitute most likely, would be uneducated. Simon would have notoriety among the people. The woman of the city would be notorious among the people. Simon obviously has a home and wealth because he invites Jesus to join him. The woman of the city doesn't say, but we can imagine that she's possibly wandering. She's possibly going from home to home, especially if she's living a life of prostitution. Or if she does have a home, it would be nowhere near the wealth and status of Simon's home. And then lastly, the last contrast that we see is that Simon, as the host, is at the head of the table. And where do we see the woman of the city? At the feet of Jesus. Now this is incredible, as Jesus then transitions to this parable in verse 41. He says this, A certain moneylender had two debtors, One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now we notice the glaring opposites of educated to uneducated, notoriety to notorious, Simon, a named man, to the woman of the city. The story highlights these two polar opposite people of societal standing, economical advantage, and overall acceptance. They could not be further apart But the story shows us very clearly one thing that they have in common. They're both debtors. They're both in debt and they both can't pay. They're at the mercy of the moneylender. And it shows us even more opposites. The woman believes she has heard about Jesus and so has Simon. And she's grabbed the most costly thing, most likely to her and then gone to Jesus. And it leaves us with this cliffhanger. Jesus pardons the woman and says, your sins are forgiven. And the question, who is this that forgives sins? It leaves us with this question. Does Simon, does he come to Jesus? Is he going to go and see Jesus for who he is? 
And I believe Luke is leaving us with this cliffhanger because we, much like the wedding ring that we examine and we see all of its beauty, we are to see this parable in all of its beauty and to turn it upside down, yes. But we are also meant to see what this means for us. What this means now that the kingdom of God is here, that Jesus is the greater prophet, that he is God with us. Who is this that forgives sins? Do you believe it? Do you respond to Jesus like the woman of the city or like Simon the Pharisee? This story shows us the hidden attitudes that we have towards Jesus and others. It also shows us how we view our own sin and need. And it shows us the various responses to Jesus as sinners. Now, I don't know if you have this problem like me. I don't like to watch a lot of movies simply because I get really invested in it and I start to imagine myself as the the title character and what decisions would I make. And especially if it's a really tense movie or a drama, uh, it just leaves me with a whole bunch of angst. And by the end of it, it's like you've run a marathon. It's really why I love James Bond movies because I'd easily see me as James Bond, you know, as a great spy going around. (laughs) No, but really, what we do when we read these stories is we tend to put ourselves in the story to ask ourselves, how would we respond? Now, if we're reading this story, we know that we're not in the the position to be the moneylender. We're obviously not Jesus. So it leaves us with two options. Are we the woman of the city or are we Simon the Pharisee? And I think If we're being honest, we tend to probably want to gravitate, honestly, to the woman of the city because she's the one that is forgiven at the end. She's the one that comes humbly to Jesus. We we want to be seen in that light. But is that us? With the women of the city, here's two questions for us. Do you come to Jesus with joy? Do you come to Jesus with joy? You might say that's a bit strange to mark her with joy as she comes weeping, but it very clearly shows that she has not ceased to kiss his feet. This is an overwhelming love and joy and affection toward Jesus. It says his fame has spread all throughout Judea, and this woman dropping everything most likely brings the costliest thing that she owns. We know that alabaster jars of ointment or perfume are not cheap. These are not things that we just pick up on the regular. This is something that has been costly for us. Do you come to Jesus with joy and bring him what is costly? What keeps you coming to Jesus with joy? I think it might be much like the woman of the city. We've heard about Jesus and his beauty and his goodness and his love and his mercy, but that has failed to reach the depths of our hearts that are often rusted shut from sin, shame, anger, and we're hardened. We don't see his beauty and his goodness rightly. And this is why I think Paul's prayer in Ephesians is is so valuable and important for us. What is 
Paul tell us to pray? What does he desire for us as a church? That we would begin to understand and comprehend the great width, length, and depth of love for Christ Jesus of us. That he loves us. And that love of Jesus begins to melt our hearts. What keeps you from coming to Jesus with joy? Second, do you hand over what is precious and costly to him? So I told you to hold on to this uh, earlier about not being able uh, to offer things at the temple that someone has earned from prostitution. So let's just think. Let's, this is not clear in scripture, so I'm not saying like this is authoritative, but let's just reason here what's happened. So we know in Deuteronomy and Leviticus that a woman could be stoned to death for prostitution. We know that she can't bring things to the temple or offer money that she's earned from prostitution uh, at the temple. It's not accepted as a sacrifice. We know that woman of the city, that she is a sinner, this most likely means that she is a prostitute, which means she makes her earning and her living by prostitution, which means that she has purchased her alabaster flask of ointment by her prostitution. Who is Jesus? Jesus in John 1 is the temple become flesh who's tabernacled among us. Where does she go? To the temple that's become flesh. And what does she do? She takes the most costly thing that she has and breaks it over his feet. And he accepts it. Here's what I think, I think what we can see in this is that with all of our sin and shame and everything that we have done, we can take it to Jesus and he redeems it. He absolutely, fully, and completely redeems it. When she breaks this alabaster jar of ointment and puts it on Jesus' feet, not only is it a balm to his feet, but the aroma would just flood the room. I mean, it would be intense, the smell that comes through. And I imagine, and this is just me imagining, just tracing dots. I'm not saying that this is authoritative, but I'm just tracing here that for this woman of the city who is a prostitute who buys things that are fragrant um, to anoint the body, she's probably used this in her prostitution, maybe. And she comes and she brings it before Jesus and the smell that was once associated with her prostitution is now associated with her redemption and forgiveness in Jesus. So here's what I think this means. Okay? If we're just connecting the dots, you don't have to connect those dots because the point is still the same. That we can bring all of our sin, our shame, all of our ill, everything, everything and anything, the deepest and darkest dangerous parts of our heart and our sinful desires and our flesh, the things that no one knows about, the things that you have kept hidden from everyone, Jesus knows, and you can bring them to him. Notice how Jesus proves himself the prophet because Simon is reasoning these things where in his mind to himself. He says, if this man really was a prophet, he wouldn't allow this woman to touch him, and then Jesus answers him how? As the prophet who knows what's hidden in Simon's heart. So if you identify with the woman of the city, do you come to Jesus with joy and do you sacrifice everything that is costly to you for Jesus? Do you bring all of your sin, all of your shame, everything, everything that's hidden to Jesus because one day it will be revealed. 
The secrets in my heart, in my mind, in your heart, in your mind, they are not secrets to him. He knows them clearly. And they will be brought to him. Second, Simon uh, the Pharisee. When we read this story, we might identify with the woman of, of the city, but we also might identify with Simon. First question, do you understand that you are in debt? Do you understand that you are in debt? That your life is not perfect, it has not been full of righteousness, and that you come to Jesus at best broken and sinful? Do you understand that you're in debt? But do you also understand that the moneylender forgives? This is, I think, what's beautiful about this story because what Jesus says about the, the moneylender and the two debtors, Simon understands what Jesus is getting across. Simon understands that he has pointed out this woman as the great debtor and Simon as the lesser debtor because maybe he's a little more righteous or whatever, but he understands that he's in debt. But the moneylender also forgives the debt. He forgives the debt of both debtors. Will Simon accept? Do you understand that you're in debt? Second, what are your attitudes towards others? Notice it's not just uh, the polar opposite that Simon has a hard heart toward. It's not just the woman of the city who's completely opposite that Simon despises and does not like. It's someone who honestly is somewhat similar to Simon, a teacher, someone who uh, goes around teaching, who claims to follow God and Jesus. Like on paper, Jesus and Simon might be pretty similar because they both know the law, they both teach. What are your attitudes towards those that are completely opposite of you? And what are your attitudes of the heart towards those that are very similar to you? It's easiest for us with people that we don't like or disagree with to ignore, reject, scoff, and harden our hearts to them. That's the easy part. The hard part is to love them like Jesus has loved them. John Stott says this, the best way to determine what our attitude to other people should be is to determine what God's attitude to them is. It is safe to say, treat others the way you would like to be treated. It is safer still to treat them as God does. Do you see that gap? That often in our hearts and in our minds, as we think about other people, I confess, I see it. I, I see that there's a gap. I have to battle against bitterness and anger and resentment. And I might hold my tongue. I might keep a cool. I might put on a smile. But what is deep down in my heart? Do I love them and see them as Jesus does? Do I love as Jesus loves? Know this. Your sins are forgiven in Christ Jesus. That's the point of the story. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And I think if we're viewing this story rightly, we shouldn't see ourselves as the woman of the city or Simon the Pharisee. We should view ourselves all over the map between 
both of them, pendulum on one side, pendulum on the other side, that we are a great sitter, that we could be called the women of the city, or we could be a hardened Pharisee that just is hardened towards other people. We're really in both places, and we are really full of debt. But do you know what Jesus says about those who come to him in repentance and faith? He says that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one center, sinner that repents than 99 righteous people that don't need to repent. When you come to Jesus, there is a celebration in heaven. When you repent of your sins, there is joy in heaven. It's yes, come to him. Jesus is calling you to come to him and accept the forgiveness that is there. So how are we then uh, to handle relationships with sinners as sinners? How are we to handle relationships with sinners as sinners? Uh, you have sinned against people. People have sinned against you. It has caused our hearts to harden. What are we supposed, how are we supposed to respond? First, we know that hardening our heart towards others is off the table. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mountain, over and over again, he tells us to love our enemies, to love them, and to pray for those who persecute you. So what are you supposed to do with those that persecute you? Love them and pray for them. It doubles down. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The second thing, if we know hardening our heart is off the table, we also know that self-acceptance is off the table. There is a dangerous myth that true freedom and forgiveness comes when we accept ourselves for who we are. It's not only dangerous, it's impossible. The last person that I should be looking to that to forgive myself is someone that is plagued by guilt and guilty. There are two debtors in this parable, and the debts are forgiven by the moneylender. He alone forgives and until then, until we see that we are fully loved and accepted in Christ Jesus, until we fully see that we have a great debt that we can never repay, and that God loves us still, and that heaven rejoices when we come to him, until then, our, the rust of our heart will not begin to break. The only thing that will break that is the love and mercy of Christ Jesus for you. Don't go to yourself in self-acceptance. Go to Jesus who forgives and accepts. You can come as you are. You go to his feet. And Jesus, in, as we come to him in faith, he will respond to us. You are saved. Go in peace. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Jesus, I, I pray... Um, that you give us minds and hearts and desires to do the hard work of turning these parables upside down and looking at them over and over and over again, not just to distill down truth or one, two, threes, but, Father, that we can see the beauty and the goodness of who you are, that these parables are a symbol of your great love and they proclaim your kingdom coming in. Father, that these Stories of Jesus and these real life things that happened are coming again. 
in you and that you are going to make all things new. So Jesus, with the hardness of our heart and the doubts that we have, Father, I pray that we are able to do two things, that we are able to hear rightly your word, that your name and your fame, like it spread throughout Judea and the countryside, by opening your word, your name and your fame spread through our hearts and through our church. Father, that you enlighten us to see who you are through your word. And Father, I pray the second thing that it does is it causes us to run to you. Father, with tears of joy and weeping that we lay down everything that we have and sacrifice to you, that you redeem all things and you make all things new. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.